Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 32. We will look at the whole chapter. Genesis chapter 32, looking at the whole chapter. Jacob is continuing his journey back into the promised land. Before we have the reading, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be given meek and humble hearts, ready to receive this word for what it truly is, the very words of God. I pray by that same power, Father, that I would be enabled to speak according to your will and according to your wisdom and not according to the foolish and vain imaginations of men nor devils. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 32, starting at verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, to the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favour in your sight. And when the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And who are these ahead of you? And Sorry, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau, Esau when, you, when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. Verse 22. 
The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Well, isn't this just life? You put one problem behind you and it turns out you've got another problem in front of you. Jacob has made his peace with Laban. He's struck up a covenant with Laban. They've put a marker in place. They're not going to fight anymore. They're not going to cross past that marker to do each other harm. He's now got nothing to worry about behind him, so to speak. Yet he knows that before him is the very reason that he ran away from the promised land in the first place. That reason, Esau, a violent man, a man who has a thirst for revenge, a man who had basically promised to himself on the day that Jacob obtained the blessing by deception that he would murder his brother Jacob once his father had died, which he apparently expected to happen quite soon. His mother, if you remember, sent him away. His mother, Rebecca, said, go to my brother Laban's household There, find yourself a wife and stay there until I tell you that it's safe. We have to assume that his mother has died in the meantime. That word never reached him. He was never told by his mother to come back. He was told by God. It was God who appeared to him and said, it's time for you to return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred, and I will be with you. And so Jacob, in obedience, has set out on his journey back into the promised land. At around about the same region, it's not exactly the same region as he saw the ladder, so to speak, of angels travelling to and from heaven, but it's around about the same region. He comes to a place where he's met by the angels of God. He was ushered out of the promised land by the angels of God and now he's being ushered back into the promised land by the angels of God. And he calls this place God's camp. He's, um, I imagine, much relieved. At verse 3, we see that he sends messengers before himself to Esau, his brother, informing Esau that he is returning, that he has built up wealth. He has wealth in his household. He has become a wealthy man. And when the messengers return, they tell him that Esau is coming with a military unit of 400 men. 
Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Why is Esau coming with 400 men? We don't know for sure, but it's about the right number for a, for a military column, a, you know, a, a tribal raiding party. And perhaps Esau himself was already out on the warpath with some surrounding tribes. Once again, we don't know. But Jacob interprets this to be a threat. He was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. He's decided basically minimise losses. How certain is he that, or how how convinced is he that his brother is coming with anger in his heart? Well, he's really quite convinced. And he's decided if, we, if I lose half the stuff and the other half survives, well, that's better than a total wipeout. He's um, not considering himself to be in any way able or capable of meeting Esau in battle. Fearful and greatly distressed. Isn't it interesting? When Laban came blustering into his camp, Laban was angry and accusatory and Jacob faced him down. Laban turned up also with young men. Laban turned up also in great anger and Jacob faced him down. Jacob faced him down and basically said to Laban, I'm not the one who has done wrong in this relationship. You've been the cheat and the liar. You've been the one who has tried to manipulate every single circumstance to your benefit. You're the one who will not even give a true blessing to your own blood. That's the kind of man you are. And he faced him down. But he's not willing to attempt to face Esau down. Think about it. Why? Well, I would suggest a guilty conscience is weakening his resolve. A guilty conscience. He could face Laban down because he knew that as far as his relationship with Laban was concerned, he was the man who had done that which is right. But he's not willing to attempt to face Esau down. Why? Well, he's Jacob, the deceiver, the cheat, the liar, the manipulator. My friends, in all your dealings, a guilty conscience weakens you. The the certain knowledge that you have done wrong, that you have been dishonest, that you have been a liar, it weakens you. If, If you want to go out into the world seeking the help and the favor of God, if you want to go forth with the blessings that God has laid upon you, preserve the integrity of your conscience. Do what is right. Deal with people in all honesty. You can't buy that. You can't buy a good name. You can't demand respect. It's something that you earn over time, whether you're a Christian or not. You don't want to be the person that everybody around about the district says, oh, that guy. And then gives you a little story of something crazy, stupid or dishonest that that guy has done. We're to live in this world with wisdom. We're to live in this world with integrity. That which we claim to be must be reflected in our actions. When we say we believe something, that's good. I've 
I'm glad to hear it, especially if that something is is truly scriptural. But I'm telling you, when you actually decide or choose to do certain things, when you actually um, move in certain ways because that is what the scripture says, then you're really actually believing what you say you believe. It's one thing to say I believe in. It's another thing to say I straight up believe. Jacob was not willing to attempt to face down Esau. Jacob was aware of the fact that he needed to make peace with his brother. At verse 9 of our chapter, we see Jacob prays. It's the first time he's recorded as praying. I don't expect that it's the first time he ever prayed, but this prayer that he prayed has been recorded for our benefit. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh, O Lord, your translation might say, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. I am not worthy. My friends, it's always a good place to start when praying. (laughs) I am not worthy. Remember, you're the beggar coming into the presence of a holy God. Remember, you're the one who has been saved not the one who has purchased salvation. I am not worthy. Jacob knows his own nature. Jacob knows what it is that he has done wrong. Jacob knows that Esau is actually, in a way, rightly angry with him. Remember, his dealings with Esau were not the same way that he dealt with Laban. I am not worthy. Verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Why does he speak in prayer the promises that he has received? Why does he speak back to God that which God had spoken to him? Well, I'll give you at least one description of prayer. Prayer is asking for that which has already been given. Prayer is asking for that which has already been given. God blesses his people. God arms us up with and loads us up with promises. You know, you're promised eternal life, my friends. If you're in Christ, you are promised eternal life. And furthermore, you are promised that you will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. You are promised that you will be given a resurrected body that is perfectly suited to the eternal life that you're going to enjoy in the presence of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have all of these promises. We're promised that in this life, the Lord will be with us in all that we do. We are promised that he will bless us, that he will teach us from the scriptures, that he will weld his people together, that he will strengthen our marriages, etc., etc., etc. Promise after promise after promise. If God has promised them, my friends, in effect, they're already yours. They have been given. But we are praying that that which has been given will be made manifest in our lives. 
We are reduced in the presence of God to childlikeness. Okay, we are reduced in the presence of God to childlikeness, whether we like it or not. In the end, we are empty-handed, poor children asking for something from an almighty, all-powerful, ever-generous, gracious God. And so Jacob speaks to God. You said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Why am, I, why am I praying like this? Why am I reminding you of this? Why am I speaking like this? Well, you gave me a promise. You have emboldened me. You gave me a promise. I know that I'm unworthy of any good thing. I know that I have been Jacob the deceiver, but you gave me a promise and therefore I am bold enough to come into your presence seeking the gift that you promised. It's a good way to pray, my friends according to the promises of God. Verse 13, he stays there that night and he sets up what's called a propitiation. Big word. What do I mean, a propitiation? What is a propitiation? A propitiation is an offering or a gift that turns away wrath. An offering or a gift that turns away wrath. Having put everything to prayer, he then considers that which God has given him and is under his control and decides to do what he can. I, um, there was a meme that came my way during the night. Someone posted it. I don't remember who posted it, but it came my way during the night. And it featured a man leaning on a shovel. And the meme said, faith is not leaning on a shovel praying for God to dig the hole. Okay. Jacob has prayed that the Lord would indeed protect him. And that Esau would not have a victory of violence over himself. Now, Jacob takes stock of what it is he has that the Lord has given him. And he prepares an enormous gift of propitiation. An enormous gift that is designed to to turn aside the wrath of his brother. The scripture tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. For he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. That's how the ESV translates that passage in 1 John. He sends him, I think the total came up to 580 animals. I mean, this is, this is practically, in a, way, in a manner of speaking, a king's ransom. This is certainly more than enough to make Esau a wealthy man on his own, in his own right. In a day and in an age where wealth was measured in flocks and herds, etc., etc., Esau has suddenly just gotten rich through the gift of his brother Jacob. So Jacob does what he can with what he has at hand, and at the same time, he trusts in God to take care of the things that he himself can't take care of. Now, this is just simple Christian wisdom. You know, there's this, there's this kind of attraction to this hyper, this this hyper spiritual supposed uh, faith. You know, I'm going to pray for a healing, and I'm not going to see the doctor. I'm going to pray for a healing of my diabetes, and I'm not going to take my insulin. We've all heard that one. It's madness. It's some kind of madness. 
Let me tell you something. If the doctor knows how to treat your disease, it's because God has entrusted mankind through common grace with scientific and medical wisdom. God has given it to us. And they are the ones who administer that grace on God's behalf to us. Go to the doctor. Who knows? Maybe over time, God may work a miracle. Maybe God will work it instantly. I'm not saying that he can't and I'm not saying that he won't. But I'm telling you, if God has put something simple and practical within your reach, he's put it there for you to use and to take hold of. Trust the things to God that you cannot do. But at the same time, remember everything that you have, God has given you. Use everything that God has given you and don't be a hyper-spiritual fool. So Jacob makes his preparations and I think he's basically figuring, you know, by the time these three layers of gifts, like, you know, you've got Esau coming towards Jacob and gift one comes by. Esau says, what is this? These are yours. We and these stock, we've been given to you. And then gift two comes by. What is this? What's going on here? Jacob said that we're yours. We and all these animals. Really? (laughs) And then along comes gift three. Esau understands. Esau understands. He knows that wrong was done. And Jacob is seeking to make up for the loss. Now, it could even be considered to be a little bit cynical. Because what we learned of Esau in previous chapters is that he was indeed a very worldly man. You know, the blessing that Esau was worried about was not really the blessing of eternal life. It was not really the blessing of offering for sin. The New Testament makes it plain to us in the quoting of the prophets that God did not love Esau. He was not a man of faith. He was not a man of righteousness. Well, men of the world like the things of the world. And this gift that Jacob is giving him is indeed the kind of thing that Esau would love. So perhaps Jacob's being a little bit cynical here. But once again, if God has given you knowledge and discernment, and if you're able to use that which God gives you in a way that is not unrighteous, what's his sin? What's he doing wrong? He knows his brother. He knows what his brother's like. His brother originally sold the birthright for a feed. Well, now he's sending him 10 years worth of food on the hoof, so to speak. He knows the man he's dealing with. Once again, he's using his God-given wisdom. Even while he's trusting God to handle that which is beyond his reach, that which he himself cannot do, for he is, in the end, only a man. We now come to the final, um, the final part of our chapter, verses 22 through to 32. And I'm sure any of you have heard this preached on a number of times. Sometimes well and sometimes not so well. The last time I heard it preached on, basically it was preached in such a way as to suggest that you can be a Jacob. That Jacob, by strength of character and his stubbornness, had a victory over God and procured for himself a blessing from God. Blessed are the stubborn, for they shall defeat God. Doesn't sound right to me. It doesn't sound right to me. What is happening here is basically a revealing 
of God, a revelation of God. John chapter 1 verse 18 tells us that no one knows God. The King James translation will say the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. He has made him known The ESV will say the only the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. No one knows God. No one has seen God. No one has heard from God. No one has seen God face to face apart from the son of God. No one knows the father unless the son makes the father known. And here, before the incarnation, Jacob meets face to face with God, who has chosen for a short period of time, for this particular night, for this particular person, to make himself, as it were, incarnate. He meets with a man and he wrestles with a man. Let's read. The same night he arose, that is Jacob, and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Okay, so let's let's look at the picture we have here. Wrestles, strives. Jacob is wrestling with a man. It turns out that all this man had to do was reach out and touch him. That was how easy it was to weaken him. That, that was how easy it was for this man to show Jacob where his place was in the scheme of things. All he had to do was reach out and touch him. This should tell us something. Jacob was wrestling because he was being allowed to wrestle. Indeed, Jacob was wrestling because not only was he being allowed to wrestle, he was being enabled to wrestle. In my mind, I have a picture of me as a father wrestling with my children when they were young. You know, I could have thrown them across the room and through the window. I really could have, but it never happened. Why? Because I wanted them to keep interacting with me. I was allowing them to think that victory might just be within their grasp. Even occasionally, even occasionally, I'd surrender and say it's too much. Very occasionally. Often when I felt I had to get up and answer the phone or whatever it might have been. This is the kind of battle that we're seeing here. I'm sure Jacob thought that he was wrestling with all his heart and expending all of his strength. And we know that Jacob was a strong guy. Remember the stone that covered the well that a, that a group of shepherds had to gather together to move? He moved it on his own on the day when he first met Rachel. He was a strong guy. But this man with whom he was wrestling, remember, could cripple Jacob with a touch. He touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So once again, I, I, I suggest to you that God is here dealing with Jacob. That 
that the pre-incarnate Son of God has, for a very short period of time, taken on a miraculous incarnation as a full-grown man, and he's basically seeing um, just how far Jacob is willing to go. He's touched his hip joint. He's put his hip joint. Um, he's touched his hip socket and put his hip out of joint. And and I think what he's saying here is, do you want more? Because I can do more. Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Sometimes, my friend, to win, you have to be beaten. Sometimes, my friend, to come into the victory, you have to first of all go through the loss. What is your name? Jacob. Remember? The heel grabber, the supplanter, the deceiver. Jacob. I think Jacob might have said it with a sob. Remember the reading we took from Hosea chapter 12. And I'll just reopen that and read it to you. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favour. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us. Hosea chapter 12, verse 4. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favour. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. What is your name? Jacob. Remember, his name was a descriptive name. It was descriptive of his character. It was reflecting the kind of person that he was. In giving the name Jacob in the presence of God, he's making confession. I'm Jacob. The deceiver, the supplanter, the sneak. Remember, he's fearful of Esau. He knows that he cheated Esau. I'm Jacob. At that moment, he's beaten. At that moment, he's had it. At that moment, he's at the end of his strength. He's made his confession. Jacob. Then he, then the man, said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Now, there'll be all sorts of footnotes in your Bible explaining to you what the word means. It could mean that he strives with God or it could mean that God strives with him. The idea is that he's a struggler. We've got a word in Australia. He's a battler. He's a struggler. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. All this life of struggling, all this life of clutching and grasping, all this life of being at battle with the people around him, being in warfare with the people around him, it turns out he was battling with God. He was struggling with God. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob becomes God's prince, God's man upon the face of the earth. Jacob seeks a further blessing. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? 
and there he blessed him. The scripture tells us that it's the lesser who is blessed by the greater, that it's the more powerful who blesses the weaker. Jacob wrestled all night with God because Jacob was enabled to and permitted to wrestle all night with God. He was empowered by God to wrestle with God in order to break him. He's defeated here. You know, Jesus died upon the cross just for a little while. It looked like the forces of darkness had won just for a little while. They thought they had the victory just for a little while. Jacob's defeated. In his defeat, he has the victory. In his surrender, in his submission, he ceases to struggle with God. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. He's basically being told, you know enough. You know enough. You know, it, you know who it is that you have been wrestling with. You know who it is that you have been praying to. You know who it is that you are indeed now speaking to. You know enough. And the revelation of my name is not for you. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means, if you don't know, the face of God saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. My friends, if you fear God, you need fear no man. If you've been taught the fear of God, you've been taught the secret of courage. Jacob has finally been transformed. He's been given a name, and he's been given a name by God himself. It's a significant moment. As we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, there is this promise there that we will be given a name that to the one who overcomes. We will be given a name that no one else knows. To be named by the Lord God himself. To have a name in his presence. That name for all of eternity. Whenever he mentions that name, you will know that he's speaking of you yourself. My name is known. To God most high. My name is upon his lips. He's been given a name and his life has been spared and he has met with God face to face. Verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Now it's a weak man who limps, but Jacob had never been stronger. He had never been stronger than when he limped away from this wrestling match. His strength came from the fact that God in his grace had made him victorious. God in his grace had made him the winner. His fear is now a fear of God. His life is now set firmly upon the promises that God had made. We read, therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. My friends, in all of our lives, there must come at least one moment 
And I mean this. There must come at least one moment, and for some it may come more often than one time. There must come at least one moment where you are conscious of the presence of God and you are conscious that you are nothing in his presence apart from what he makes you. We have nothing to bring into the presence of God. The scripture tells us that our righteous works are like filthy rags in the sight of God. We do not bring righteousness into the sight of God. The scripture tells us that God owns all things. He is no man's debtor. We have no claim to make upon God. You owe me because I did. Try that line and God will laugh at you. Try that line and God will laugh at you. We bring nothing to God that is not already God's. Turn for a moment to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, having spoken of the grace of God in sending the Lord Jesus Christ as a servant, a man of flesh, that same Lord Jesus Christ who would be bowed to as Yahweh himself is to be bowed to. Verse 10, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, so that the name of the Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now stop there. If you're not aware of it, that's a quotation from the Old Testament that comes directly from Jehovah or Yahweh himself saying that every knee shall bow to me and every knee shall bow to my name. It's now applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Read on, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Think carefully of what it is that the Apostle Paul is saying there. If we manage to do something that is good and right in the sight of God, if our works reflect our confession, if we are faithful and obedient in all that we do, why is that? Why is that? How is that being done? The Apostle Paul says, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Have you done good works? Who gets the glory? God. Because apart from the power of God, the enabling of God's Holy Spirit, apart from the application of the word of God so that you know in your heart that which is right to do, would you have ever done it? You know, can you claim some kind of righteousness of your own? And the answer is obviously no, I cannot. If we do anything that is right, we do what is right because it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We do what is right because God enables us. So, my friends, I ask you a question. If, as a Christian, as a believer, you do something right, would that thing decrease your debt to God or increase your debt to God? Would it make the debt smaller because you've paid God off a bit or would it make the debt greater because you actually get no credit for it because it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure? It's the latter, isn't it? 
even if we do what is right, even when by the power of God's Holy Spirit, we as the servants of God do that which is good, God gets the glory. And if you want to think of this in terms of debt, our debt to God only ever increases. Because it's God who's doing it. And apart from God, we couldn't and we wouldn't do it. I don't like really speaking of debt in a way because God is gracious and merciful. It's not as though he's ever seeking to um, make us in some way pay him back for that which he has freely given. But the, the idea of debt is a picture that it appears in the Bible. One of the words in the New Testament that is translated as sin is indeed debt. A failure to pay debt. God is gracious and merciful. He takes us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And any good that we do does not decrease that which we owe him. It only increases it. And so, my friends, as Christians, we find ourselves being brought into the presence of God and reminded that apart from the work of God, we would not be there at all. And so many of the battles that we have in this world are indeed battles of us in our foolishness actually striving against God, not going with God. Trying to take something for ourselves, trying to make some claim of our own. I do it, I'm sure you do it. It's the common condition of mankind. Even for the saved, no one can claim perfect sanctification. No one can claim that we are yet that which God intends us to be. All of us are involved in this battle. We live in the world, we struggle with the flesh, and we're tempted by the devil. Wickedness, as it were, is all around us, distractions all around us. And it's so easy to be turned aside. And it's so easy for us to go after sin and things that are sinful. And sometimes the things that are sinful, they appear to be righteous and they're not because we can be deceived. And we're constantly dragged back into the presence of God. And we must have this experience of understanding that we have nothing apart from God, which might mean that God has to touch us. In Jacob's case, he touched Jacob and disjointed his hip. He weakened him. He broke him, as it were. Sometimes you have to be broken. That's the way that God works. Pride is not a good thing. And God will not accept pride in his people. He will not accept it. No one has anything of which they can boast. No one. With Jacob, we have to be able to say, I am not worthy of the least of the things that you have done for me, O God. It's why you should give thanks for your food. But I earned the wages. I did the work. Well, where did all that come from? Who put all this before you? Who enabled you to do the work? Who enabled you to earn the wages? Who has other people do that which is right by you and pay them for your efforts? It's always God, God, God. In the end, it's always God. Don't mistake the secondary means and causes as the primary means and cause. What do I mean? God uses 
what we would call the standard things of the world. God uses the laws of science. God uses wage negotiations. God uses agreements, contracts, you name it. All of these things. He's the primary cause of all of these things. There is nothing that we get good. No, there is no good thing that we receive that has not come to us from God. And in Christ Jesus, even the things that are hard, even the things that are difficult, even the things that are tough, they also come from God and are being made to work for our good. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 28. Romans chapter 8. <laughs> Sorry, there are, there are not 28 chapters in Romans. You might guess that the verse that we're heading for starts with 20. Romans chapter 8. We'll start reading at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Go back to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things. You know, sometimes things hurt really bad. Sometimes you end up with the proverbial knife in the back and perhaps you might end up with a real knife in your back. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things, all pains, all losses, all griefs, all sadnesses, all good things, all victories, all things that make you rejoice, all things work together for good. How are they being made to work together for good? They're being used by God to accomplish something. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's happening now. We're being conformed now to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're being polished. Sharp edges are being knocked off. Flaws are being dug out. In every way that we fall short of the mark, God is at work using all things to conform us to the image and the likeness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All things. Esau, I mean, Jacob feared Esau. And God was making all things work for Jacob's good. Jacob was cheated by Laban and God was making all things work for Jacob's good. And even when Jacob sinned against Esau, there was a way in which God was making that work for Jacob's good. Because remember, in the passage that we've been studying today, it was Jacob's conscience that was making him tremble. 
that was making him realise that in the presence of God, he was a sinner and he owed everything to God and that he had nothing of his own of which to boast. All things are being made to work for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Things that we would call good, things that we would call bad, things that we would call easy, things that we would call hard. They're all being made to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's happening even now in our lives. All things. Jacob wrestled with God and God himself injured, permanently apparently injured Jacob. God himself weakened Jacob. And this was made to work for Jacob's good. This was made to work for Jacob's benefit. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has wounded us that he may heal us. My friends, this growth of Jacob, from Jacob the deceiver to Israel of God, it's it's analogous to our lives as Christians. We're in the business of being transformed. We have been transformed. We're no longer what once we were. We are not yet what we are intended to be. But my friends, our boast in the Lord is we're on the way. We're on the way. We're in the way. We're proceeding forwards towards the mountain of God where we're going to worship in the presence of the Lamb. Even those things that trouble our conscience and break us down in the presence of God are being used for our good. God is using those things to teach us to repent of our sins, to teach us to hate them, to push them away from us, to teach us to mortify the flesh. God is using those things to make us like his son, the Lord Jesus, that we will be pleasing in his sight. Amen. The life of a believer is that all things are being made to work together for our good. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you and we praise you that we may trust you for all that is beyond our control, for all that is beyond our knowledge, that we have been made yours through Jesus Christ our Lord and your word assures us that we are being transformed into the image and the likeness of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ that he will be our older brother, that we will be his younger brethren. We have been made, as it were, members of the family and the household of God. And in this we rejoice. Father, we pray that you would bless this knowledge to us, that we would be increased in faithfulness and obedience, that we would go forth from this place serving you in the world with boldness and joy. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.